would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read verse 13 to the end of the chapter this morning. So the message today, it won't be about mothers. Forgive me, mothers. Uh, I have made it worse. I have preached on Sodom and Gomorrah before on Mother's Day. I won't do that today, but it is about suffering, so maybe mothers can relate because uh, there's quite a bit of suffering in this passage. In fact, uh, sometimes when I'm preaching through certain passages of Scripture, you, you begin to wonder, have I experienced anything that you know the Apostle Paul has experienced or anything like uh, what some of the other figures in Scripture have written about? Uh, sometimes I wonder as a preacher whether or not I'm preparing the next generation for what they're going to face. And so keep that in mind even as you are taking this in today. Um, I think all of us to some extent know what affliction is like, but particularly the type of affliction Paul is speaking of here is something that I think our culture is just beginning to possibly face, uh, whereas other cultures all around the world are, are facing this on a daily basis. But uh, I do think that the Word of God is powerful, it's active, it's living, and it's, it's for us uh, today in this generation as well. So let's, uh, let's take these words seriously. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, beginning in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, Paul says, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us as we read your word. We know that uh, our minds naturally gravitate toward earthly things. We pray that at this hour especially that you would help us to lift up our hearts and our eyes unto heaven as we hear from uh, the the very word of God, uh, that we would know your word, we would know your will, more importantly, that we would know you and love you and walk with you in the fellowship that you've called us to, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The great persecution in the Roman Empire instigated by the emperor Diocletian uh, occurred, uh, began in the year 303 A.D. And it lasted for a very long, ten grueling years. During that time, Christianity became public enemy number one. Uh, in, in the Roman Empire, and day by day there was a decree that went out by the emperor that uh, affected uh, Christians in a number of ways. Uh, the, the first decree that went out essentially went out to destroy every church in the empire. So any aspect of a, a gathering that was brought together in the name of Christ was meant to be uh, put away. Then they began to confiscate every aspect of Scripture, so anybody who had a copy of God's Word They were confiscating it. Then after that, anyone who was in a position of government who claimed the name of Christ immediately lost his job, was cast out of his position of authority. 
And then they went after all the ministers, imprisoning them and forcing them to uh, offer sacrifice to the pagan gods. And if they refused to do so, they were tortured and or burned alive. So many edicts passed day after day to accomplish this in a very short period of time. It was only after the emperor Constantine came to power about 10 years later that Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire through the Edict of Milan. It's a totally different edict altogether that the Christians were rejoicing over. But it's interesting, it was only six years later that the famous Council of Nicaea came about. Um, most of you are probably familiar with the Nicene Creed, similar to the Apostles' Creed in some ways. Uh, but the purpose of this council coming together, in part, was to defend the divinity of Christ and to help explain the doctrine of the Trinity more fully because there were people who were beginning to deny whether Jesus was, in fact, God. What is not as readily known, though, is that out of the 318 delegates that came together to make this decision, only 12 men in the room, only 12, had not lost an eye or hand, or did not limp on a leg lame by torture as a result of the great persecution. Only 12 men had a clean bill of health, if you will. The rest of them had experienced some horrible affliction as a result of their faith. So now this second letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians actually was uh, written about 250 years prior to this time of uh, the great persecution of Diocletian. And as of yet, there had not been a large-scale persecution of the church that would occur just in about 10 years from the point of this writing uh, under Herod, King, uh, under, not Herod, I'm sorry, under Nero, the Emperor Nero. But until that time, the Apostle Paul had undergone many local and regional persecutions, if you will, as he was going and sharing the gospel throughout the Roman Empire both to Jews as well as Gentiles. In fact, uh, compared to the Judaizers, those who were uh, accusing Paul of a number of things, challenging his ministry in a number of ways, compared to them, Paul seemed like a human punching bag because he constantly was undergoing some aspect of suffering and affliction for the sake of the gospel. They underwent none. And so they began to question his credentials saying in, in some way or another that obviously you must be saying the wrong things, otherwise people wouldn't be treating you in this way. And yet Paul writes to the Corinthians telling them he doesn't lose heart in the midst of all of these afflictions. Instead, he's all the more eager to preach the gospel uh, of Christ everywhere he goes. And, and, and the question is why? Why is Paul willing to undergo so much pain and affliction for the sake of the gospel? And, and that's essentially the, the question that we're seeking to answer this morning in our text. Um, and, and Paul gives four reasons for his um, willingness to undergo such, such a persecution. And here are the four. I'm going to give them to you in the beginning, and then we'll seek to flesh them out. The first reason he has courage and is willing to undergo so much adversity is because of his faith in the resurrection. That's number one. Number two, because of his love, his deep love for the church of Christ. Number three, because of his great zeal for God's glory. And number four, because of his own preparation for glory. We'll get to that one in a little bit. But let's, let's begin with his faith in the resurrection. 
If you look back at the text with me in verses 13 and 14, there Paul says this, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Now here Paul is making a reference to the passage that, Paul, that Mark read earlier from Psalm 116. Uh, which is a, a prayer of thanksgiving unto God for some aspect of deliverance. So as we have read just recently, uh, this psalmist was going through a, a great uh, time of affliction in his life at the hands of men. Men were seeking to harm him physically in some way or another, and yet uh, the psalmist is giving praise unto God that somehow eventually the Lord intervened and saved him from their hands. Uh, but he shares, in the meantime, he says, the cords of death entangled me, and the anguish of the grave came upon me. In other words, he really thought he was going to die. He really thought that this was going to be perhaps his last minute of life, and yet, he says in that psalm, I believed even when I spoke of my great afflictions. So the question comes, what did he believe? Well, in part, uh, he believed that God was hearing his prayers, that God would somehow intervene in his behalf, either to redeem him out of this particular situation or even something better, because at the end of the passage that we read this morning, he also shares, the psalmist does, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So he's saying, even if the Lord doesn't get me out of this situation, still I'm considered precious in his sight. I'm still in his, uh, in his will, in his mind, in his love. And it's the same type of faith that Paul is saying that he shares with the psalmist that regardless of the outcome of what happens in the midst of his afflictions, in the midst of his persecution, that still he knows that the Lord is on his side. He's not doubting that at all and is not doubting that God has good intentions for him in the midst of this. But particularly in, in verse 13, he has three verbs there that are all in the present tense. They're all in the first person plural. So he's using this, we do this, we do that, right? So the first one, he says, we have. And then secondly, he says, and we also believe. And then thirdly, he says, and we also speak. And of course, the, the second two verbs, are, the, the latter two verbs are dependent upon the, the first one. But basically, Paul's saying we have something in common with this psalmist, and therefore we believe something, and therefore we also speak something. Now, what is he saying? Well, first of all, what do they have in common? He, he's basically saying we have the same spirit of God at work in us that the spirit that was at work in the psalmist, helping him to interpret what's going on in the proper manner, right? So he's, he's, first of all, he has the spirit of God to understand the situation rightly. And as a result, they also believe the same things that the psalmist believed that God was going to take care of them, that God was going to help them in some way, and particularly even if that meant their own death, that God would even raise them from the dead. Precious in the sight of the Lord is even, even the death of the saints because that's not the end of the saints. God is not the God of the dead but of the living, right? And so Paul is, is clinging to this same faith in the resurrection of the dead, but he has it more fully than the psalmist does because now he's seen Christ raised from the dead, right? Uh, but now he's saying, as a result, I do not lose heart because I know that the worst possible scenario that could happen to me 
is my death. And yet, precious in the sight of the Lord is his saints. And yet, there's still something beyond the blessing of even God's redemption in the immediate situation. Now, keep in mind, on the other hand, Paul has said uh, something that, that proves his faith in the opposite way. Uh, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 15, he basically says if he had not believed in the resurrection, then every suffering he had ever experienced was pretty much pointless, vainless, and, and pitiable, right? Uh, he, he says literally, what, what good is it? Uh, all this suffering, if there's no resurrection, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then my preaching is in vain, my suffering is in vain, and everyone who has ever trusted in Christ is to be pitied above all men because they're fools if there's no resurrection. But it's because of his strong belief in the resurrection of the dead that he's able to endure afflictions, sufferings, persecutions in every way. In fact, it's because of his belief in the resurrection of the dead that he's willing to constantly serve as a servant, a slave of Christ, to tell others about Christ, and even take up his cross and follow Christ unto death. For what Christians actually believe about the future makes all the difference in how they live today, right? What you believe about your future affects how you live today. If you hope in the resurrection, then you will spend your time preparing for that. You'll spend your time preparing for the next life, not just preparing for this one. I, I read something just the other day <clears throat> that was kind of a, sort of a smack in the face, I think, to the average American that professes Christ. Uh, this man said this, most Christians don't really believe in the resurrection. Instead, they believe in retirement. For their contemplation and preparation for retirement far surpasses any thoughts concerning the resurrection. If you were to ask them how did they define the end times, they define it with the word retirement, not resurrection, because it's not on their mind. It's sort of like Milton Bradley's game of life, right? It's whoever has the most money in the end, they win the game. That's the end of the game, supposedly. That's not how it used to be. Go back and look up the history of the life the game of life, it's changed dramatically according to our American culture. Now it's all about money. didn't used to be. But if it's not about wealth, then it's usually about health, right? Which is why I went after all these health and wealth gospels a couple weeks ago, all these people that are preaching these false gospels, because then the average person who gets to a certain age of their life, if they're not thinking about money, what are they thinking about? Their health. How can I extend my life for another 10, 20 years? It's all about how can I continue to stay here on earth, not preparing for the next life, but trying as much as possible to keep myself in this life. That's sort of the American view of the end times, if you will. They don't consider the resurrection much at all. And therefore, any aspect of suffering just runs counter to this end game, if you will. And so Paul is showing how the reason why he's able to suffer and endure so much affliction in his life is because he has a different end in mind than the average person does. That's first. Second, he gives another reason uh, for his willingness to face affliction and to, to have the courage to undergo it. He says uh, because also because of his love for the church. It's another thing that uh, Americans don't often love. <laughs> if you look back at verse 14, Paul says this. He says, knowing that 
he, that's God, who raised the Lord Jesus, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, for it is all for your sake, he says. Uh, I've said it a number of times before, but unlike the Jehovah's Witness who comes to your door who's trying to save himself, Paul is willing to undergo great affliction because he wants to save you. He has others in mind, not him himself. In fact, he, he emphasizes the, the word you twice in that passage, that, that you too might share in this eternal life with me, that you might share in this fellowship with me, that you might stand in the presence of the Lord right beside me. He, he imagines that when he gets to heaven, if you will, that everyone he's ever led to Christ is right there with him, singing songs of praise. He's giving his life for the sake of the gospel because he loves the church that much. In fact, in 2 Corinthians Second <clears throat> um, uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, Paul says this to the, the believers in Corinth. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. He has such a, a high view of the church, a high view of his brothers and sisters in Christ, that he will undergo any aspect of affliction to help his brothers and his sisters grow in their faith. All you have to do is just look at any of Paul's epistles and you'll just see how often he's interceding on their behalf, how he's encouraging them, praying for them, giving thanks for them, how he's constantly serving them in some way or another that they might grow in sanctification, that they might grow in that fellowship with the Lord. Even if that means he has to suffer greatly in order that they might experience that blessing, he's willing to undergo it. Again, this runs counter to the Judaizers who are not willing to do anything. They want to be the lords. They don't want to be the servants. They don't want to minister. They want to be ministered to. But in this case, the same Spirit of God that's at work in him, increasing his faith in the resurrection, is also increasing his love for the church of Christ, teaching him to love the brothers and sisters in Christ. Anyone who calls himself a, a Christian today, if that same Spirit of God is at work in him or her, it automatically should cause this great love for the church as well. I, I can't tell you, I mean, in the last 20 years, it just seems as if there's so many people, I mean, you, start, you had all those home church movements, and then you had COVID, and then pretty much no one felt any desire to go to church or be a part of a church. It seemed as if that were the case. The Apostle Paul loves the church, absolutely loves her. Why does he love her so much? Because Christ does. And the same Spirit of Christ is at work in him, is also at work in his believers today. It causes us to love the church in the same way. Not just willing to identify ourselves publicly with the church, but being willing to serve her, make sacrifices for her, even suffer for her sake. This is, this is one of the greatest purposes that Paul has in his suffering. It's not about his own hope in the resurrection. He suffers for you. But that's not the greatest reason he suffers. Notice in verse 15, he also speaks of his zeal for the glory of God. There Paul says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, <clears throat> it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. <clears throat> Notice here that in the midst of his sufferings, Paul has many more people in mind than just the believers in Corinth. Uh, he truly has what might be called a, a global perspective. Uh, he knows that those who trust in Christ through his ministry will in turn talk to others. 
And then they, in turn, will talk to others and, and infect others, if you will, with the gospel of Christ to the point where uh, there is indeed a movement in which people are coming and, and giving more glory unto Christ, uh, even though the uh, apocalypse of John has not yet been written. Right, This would happen about 20 years in the future. The Apostle Paul already sees sort of a preliminary vision of what John will see in the book of Revelation. Uh, chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, John sees this great crowd that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every language, all of these standing before the throne, before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, continually saying this, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Glory and honor and praise be to him forever and ever and ever. Paul has this vision in mind every time he opens his mouth to preach the gospel, that God's glory would be magnified, that God's glory would be known throughout all the earth. This global vision is what gave Paul courage in the face of his persecution. It gave him uh, the ability not to lose heart because he saw that whatever small role he played in this, even though it's a much greater role than the role that we would play, whatever small role he played, he didn't do it for himself. He didn't do it so that he could somehow claim credit for himself. He wanted to see the name of God glorified. And so he was, underwilling, he was willing to undergo anything as a result. You know, there are, there are a number of sermons and songs exhorting us to witness, to evangelize, to, to do missions even, if you will. Um, in fact, I think many of them sort of come from the perspective of, you should go out, you should witness, because they may go to hell if you don't. Or they, they need something from Christ, and you ought to give it to them. And in fact, um, I, I had a particular song in mind. Steve Green uh, wrote that famous song in the 90s. Perhaps many of you know it. It just says, people need the Lord, right? It's a great song. There's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. In that hymn, he says, uh, we are called to take God's light to a world where wrong seems right. What could be too great a cost for sharing life with one who's lost? People need the Lord. Absolutely true. They need the Lord, and you ought to give them uh, the gospel of Christ that they might know the Lord. But know this, that's not the primary reason that we tell others about Christ. Not because they need the Lord. Think of it this way. What's the greatest command in Scripture? To love God with all your heart. The second command is to love your neighbor as yourself. If you go out and you make loving your neighbor your primary reason for doing evangelism, you've already missed the boat. It ought to be for God's glory first, out of love for God first. That will actually give you a greater motivation to tell others about Christ than even their needs, than even their pain and their suffering. To go out because you want to see God's name upon their lips, praised and magnified, giving thanks unto him for all that he has done in ministering unto their soul. Because the more people who come to faith in Christ, more people give glory to God. This is his global perspective, if you will. And this is, what, this is what drives missions. When you have a desire to see God's glory magnified all over the world. If we don't have that desire, 
I don't think we've really caught hold just yet of God's heart and God's mind. If all we think of is, well, I'm going to pray for myself, for my family, for my local friends, and as long as we're good, you know, the world can go to hell. <laughs> I mean, sometimes we have that perspective, right? But if you are continuing to seek the mind of the Lord, all of a sudden you get this vision, this expansive vision that John sees in the book of Revelation that we ought to be seeing too. All of these people coming to faith in Christ. Whatever small role we have to play in that, we want to play in it. That's the third reason. And then the fourth reason is he's underwilling to go all of this affliction and, and suffering, even persecution, for his own preparation for glory. Go back to verse 16 and 17. There Paul says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. <clears throat> it's funny, when uh, we were helping Marilyn Roll move this week, out of her old apartment into Lockwood, the senior living center. I felt pretty youthful and energetic moving the stuff out of her house into the truck at first. I was even racing a couple of the younger guys that I could put the box on there quicker than they could because I can. And then all of a sudden I picked up some heavy piece of furniture and I quickly turned to go down the hall and then I pulled a muscle in my back. And uh, immediately became aware, okay, well, I am a little bit older than I used to be. I get it. And then I was still carrying the furniture, even though I was hurting a little bit. And I was walking backwards, and then the truck, uh, I forgot we didn't have the ramp down, but there was a, what do you call that, the trailer hitch. I walk into the trailer hitch and then fall down. Still carrying that heavy piece of furniture. And all of a sudden, I, I wrench my neck then. And I'm going, okay. I'm still carrying the furniture. But now I'm calling the two younger men to come and help me get it onto the truck because I can't lift this thing, right? So I, you know, I felt pretty humbled. No big deal. I was suddenly you know, reminded of my age. But then on top of that, we finally get to Maryland's new place, to Lockwood. And now I'm carrying lighter furniture and feeling pretty good about myself. And then my wife suddenly informs me that I am a candidate for having my own apartment in this senior center. <laughs> Because apparently it is a 50-plus living community, and I just turned 50 a few weeks ago. I never had a midlife crisis, but now I'm experiencing an end-of-life crisis, where now I realize my body is indeed wasting away, right? It's not exactly what Paul is saying here. He doesn't really say his body is wasting away, but it's sort of implied in some ways. But it literally says our outer self is wasting away. But know this, he's not using the, the philosophy of the Greeks. The Greeks had a, a view of the body that the body was evil and that the soul was good and that you had to separate the two. He's, again, he, he's preaching the resurrection, so that the resurrection of the body, the body is a good thing. But in this particular case, he's sort of showing the old self as that self in reference to Adam. It's dying, it's decaying. Whereas now the new self inwardly in Christ is being renewed each day, right? As someone is, is looking to the Lord, as someone is, is, is going to his word each day, there's this renewal that takes place inwardly. 
And, and Paul uses the same language in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 about this, this new self being renewed on a daily basis. But particularly in light of the suffering he's experiencing, he's saying the suffering helps remind him that his old self is indeed passing away. But there's a new self that's only getting better and better. Look at verse 17. There Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, before you argue with Paul that he's minimizing any of your afflictions that you've experienced in life, and I know many of you have experienced some pretty uh, awful afflictions at different times, keep in mind that Paul, too, has experienced (laughs) whippings, beatings, stonings, and a bunch of other things. In addition to being naked and cold and hungry at various times, he's gone through the whole gamut of it. He's not minimizing anybody's affliction in this case, but he's basically saying you have to look at your afflictions from the right perspective. It's all about perspective. All of you have been to the doctor's office at some point in time with some sort of ache and pain, right? And more than likely the doctor at some point has said, on a scale of 1 to 10, Tell me, what, how is your pain? What does it feel like, right? With 10 being, 10 being the worst pain you've ever experienced in your entire life, and one being so minor of a pain that uh, it's, it's, you can barely speak of it, if that's the case. Well, basically what he's saying is in, in light of the glory of eternity that you will experience as a Christian, every pain and affliction that you have here on earth doesn't even register as a one. It's much less than one, much less than you think it is. Of course, if you remember uh, uh, back in the first chapter of this epistle, Paul is explaining a great affliction that he experienced. He he, he tells us that at some point in Asia, when he's preaching the gospel in Asia, he says this, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So again, not minimizing affliction. He's, He's helping you to see... It was so awful and it was so heavy that we, we almost despaired of life, right? And yet now he's using the same word that he called a burden in that first chapter to refer to the weight of glory. So he's saying, this heavy burden that I could not bear, that seemed overwhelming, this affliction, it weighed so much. Now he's saying, that's nothing in comparison to the weight of glory when it comes upon you. It's a totally different scenario altogether. I mean, you sort of think of it this way. Weight is a relative term, right? Um, if, you know, if you, if you want to lose weight, just go to the moon. Right? You weigh like four times less. Quick, quick weight loss solution. Just move to the moon. You'll feel much better about yourself. But in this particular case, uh, weight is something that is always a relative term. You know, something is heavier than something else. Something is lighter than something else. So even though your affliction might seem overwhelming and the worst possible life scenario ever, Paul's saying that in comparison to the glory that you'll experience, it's not even mentionable. It's so, so light. That's the way he explains it in the Greek at least. But at some point, you're probably saying, okay, so what is glory, and how do you weigh it? It's a great question to ask. Um, Glory is something that God alone 
has, and yet he shares it with us when he reveals himself to us. You could say that when men and women are in the presence of the glory of God, each individual is filled with awe and wonder and joy and rapture and praise and pleasure, and it just goes on and on. We, we sometimes refer to it as the, the, the beatific vision. It's this, this, this vision of God's glory that would just be so overwhelming that it would, it would flood you with every possible good thing, but it would then weigh you down with His goodness, weigh you down with His holiness, weigh you down with His pleasure. There are greater pleasures at God's right hand than anything in this earth, David says. It's so weighty that it would so fill your, your soul with joy and wonder that whatever pain and affliction that you've experienced on earth, you wouldn't even feel it. You wouldn't even think about it. It wouldn't even be a part of your consideration. In fact, Romans 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. It's not even worth comparing. You know, it, it's often said that, uh, you know, we won't remember the people that are on earth when we get to heaven, you know, our loved ones especially, because if we do, that we'll be full of pain. I mean, if they're still here and we're there, that we won't even think about them, because if we think about them, then maybe our heart will be flooded with pain and sorrow because of their condition or maybe because of their eternal destination. We won't even think about that. We we, we can't think about that. But, But what Paul is saying here is that, even the, the greatest possible sadness, heartache, perplexion, all of those things wouldn't even register once you're in the presence of God. So in other words, from our human perspective, we're thinking, well, you know, if, if an, even a, a sad thought could enter, then heaven's no longer heaven. But, the, the, but you have to understand, the weight of glory is so heavy that whatever possible pain or affliction that anyone on earth ever experiences altogether cannot compare. It won't even register. That, that should make you think, what is it that I'm looking forward to here? Your worst day, your worst week, your worst year cannot compare to a second in heaven. Let that sink in. That's why Paul's willing to undergo any aspect of suffering and persecution here, because he knows it doesn't, doesn't even count. Martin Luther, commenting on this passage, says this. He says, if I consider the greatness and the glory of the life that we shall have when we have risen from the dead, I will not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults, and imprisonment, but I shall also say this. Oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of all the godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed and which has come to me through the merit of Jesus Christ. He's saying, I would throw myself at the feet of all the godless, let them trample on me and spill my blood. I wouldn't even feel it in light of the glory that I'm to receive. This perspective, of course, doesn't occur in us naturally, right? We, we, we think heavenly-minded um, uh, earthly-minded instead of heavenly-minded. But the Holy Spirit is working through us, through our afflictions, to make us more heavenly-minded by helping us to re- reevaluate what we think is important, to reevaluate what we, we hold dear. 
So again, Paul, Paul isn't bemoaning his afflictions, but rather he's thankful for them because it's helping him to depart from this earth, preparing for his arrival in glory. Verse 18, he says that we are able to weigh our afflictions rightly as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So in this case, he's not comparing the weightiness, if you will, of glory, but now he's considering the timelessness of glory in comparison to the temporarity of our afflictions. From our earthly perspective, afflictions seem so long so miserably long but again in light of eternity it's just like a blip on the map it's nothing in comparison to the time of glory that we'll share with christ in heaven of course the truth of the matter is that everybody suffers right all human beings suffer not just christians everybody suffers there's always a aspect of affliction even just an old age all of us will have to go through that and many of us gripe and complain at the smallest of afflictions But Paul saw these afflictions truly as a means through which he would gain a better perspective of glory in in accordance with these purposes that he would gain a greater faith in the resurrection, gain a greater love for the church, gain a greater zeal for the glory of God being spread on earth. It's all preparing him for glory. And, And we see that this is not just theory for Paul. We see this worked out practically uh, in a number of situations, but I can give you just one. If you remember when uh, Paul and Silas were thrown into prison in Philippi, right? The second that the prison guard put the shackles on their feet and walked away, what did they do? They immediately began singing songs of praise unto God. Now, they didn't do that for show. You know, you know how some Christians were like, well, let's pray so that other people can see us praying as we eat. He's not doing it for show. He's doing it because he honestly has a joy in the Lord in the midst of his afflictions because he firmly believes that this is all good for him, that this is good for the church, that this is good for the glory of God. It's good in so many ways. And that's what he says in Romans, right? All of these things work out for the good of those who love him and are called according to... There's so much good that comes about through his afflictions that he can't help but sing. Did the, did the, did the other prisoners hear it and testify to it? Yes. Did the prison guard himself uh, come to faith in Christ probably through those songs? Probably yes. But was that the reason why he was singing? No. He was singing... Because he truly believed that affliction was not bad, that persecution itself was not bad, but actually was something that God was doing for good in his life. That's a perspective I just don't think that we have. May the Lord prepare us for whatever we might face on this earth, but even more so, prepare us for the glory that's to be revealed. Help us gain that perspective, O Lord. Let's pray. Father, we... We come with a a lot of thoughts and a lot of perspectives and a lot of assumptions when when we read your word. And we know that many of those thoughts and perspectives are are, are cloudy at times and, and just dead wrong at others. We pray that as we 
have just read this word, Lord. Help us not to be like the man who looks at his face in the mirror and immediately walks away and forgets what he looks like. But Lord, help us to to meditate upon this word. Help us to, to let it sink down into our hearts. And even if we don't use it today, Lord, prepare us for the day in which we do face affliction. Help prepare us to to discard this body that's decaying and to put on that new self that only gets better and better each day. Lord, prepare us for glory.